and welcome to the Buckets and Tea NBA show. I'm your host, Catherine Niker. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Our music is brought to you by Tanika Charles, courtesy of Record Kicks. Her albums Soul Run and The Gumption are available now on all streaming platforms. Joining me this week is writer for the Washington Post, a Lego builder, Taylor Swift fan, and author of the new book, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. It's Ben Golliver. How you doing? I'm doing so great. I love this show. It's such an honor to be on you. Your monologues, your opening monologues really carried me through, you know, quite a lonely experience in the bubble there. You would just be going off randomly about God knows what, usually Nick Nurse for like 20 minutes straight. And I was like, I kind of think she needs somebody to talk to. So here I am to, uh, you know, be your little conversational partner. But I brought a question kind of preloaded for you. I want to spring it upon you. Is that okay? Oh, my God. That's amazing. Go for it. Well, it's right up your alley because it's about Nick Nurse. I know you're, you're one patron saint. So he's got the hat with his initials on it, like uh-huh. his own branded hat, right? Yeah. The NN. Um, monograms, arguably cool, arguably really not cool, uh, mm-hmm. just depending on, you know, what type of clothing we're talking about, depending the situation, you know, in public with the, lo- the, the suitcases and luggage, it might be a little aggressive, but he's like all the way out front with the NN hat. Uh-huh. Is it cool is it ironically cool is it ironically uncool or is it just uncool when it's applied to nick nurse like i I just trying to test right now your loyalty really to nick nurse and i just wanted to see like where do you come down because let's be honest if this was steve nash if -hmm. this was stan van gundy if this was Ty Lu, I'm calling you out and saying you don't think that the personalized hat for an NBA coach would actually be cool, but I think you're going to have a different opinion when it comes to Nick Nurse. Am I right? Wait, you wait. So you don't think it'd be cool for Steve Nash or Ty Lu to have their own merch? You don't think that they would just get roasted for that? Like, what if I showed up on this <laughs> podcast right now with a BG hat on? It'd be like, come on, dude. And granted, I do sell merchandise. You have my merch. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good point. I, I am guilty as charged. You called me out completely, and I'm glad we got that out of the way. Um, I, I think it's just different with the monogram. Is it? Would you ever wear a CN hat? Okay, so here's the thing. Well, first of all, if I wore a CN hat, people would assume I was like referring to the CN Tower or something. Like, they wouldn't <laughs> even think it was like me. But I think, okay, so the story behind the hat was it was a gift from Nike and he only had four. And okay. then he decided to, at some point after the championship, to really double down and embrace his celebrity. Like, yeah. I've never seen a coach dedicated to being, and, and I want to say specifically a Canadian celebrity. Like, he's got real, like, Canadian celebrity energy to him <laughs> in a way that's just very odd. Like, he has, like, a whole line of merch he has like a, like, it's not just a hat. Like he has like shirts and t-shirts. He just did a collaboration with Dr. J on merchandise, but it's all for charity, which I think helps make it not so cringy. And I don't know, like, I, I'm going to say it's cool because at least it's for charity. (laughs) That's, that's my way out of this. (laughs) <laughs> that's a good loophole i mean i saw gary trent jr showed up with like a toronto maple leafs jersey like right after oh he my got God, traded the, right the gary trent jr pandering to raptors fans is just off the charts like i okay one of one question i was going to say for you for my raptors homer moment but we'll just get into it now is are the raptors just the worst fan base in all of the nba are you or do you hate raptors fans more than anybody because oh, you do no, refer no. to us as termites in all fairness. i don't i'm 
I don't hate the Raptors fans. And let's be honest, I'm a quarter Canadian technically because my grandfather was like kind of <laughs> smuggled over the border, like uh-huh. right before he was born. They had to bring him back. So I feel a certain kinship with, you know, how Americans condescendingly refer to you guys as the, our neighbors to the north, like one mm-hmm. of the lamest phrases of all time. I'm just wondering, did Nick Nurse get jealous when he saw the Gary Trent Jr. pandering move and was like, God, I should have had a, a, a Toronto Maple Leafs colorway of my NN hat. I could have sold this. Like, this was such a smart move by Gary Trent mm-hmm. Jr. Are they going to have rival merchandise plans here as we go forward? I don't know. Um, in terms of the Raptors fans, there was just a really delusional period. I would say like probably the first four years or so of um, DeMar DeRozan's real rise to prominence, <laughs> where I really think that a lot of Raptors fans thought he was Michael Jordan essentially and could do no wrong. And it didn't matter mm-hmm. how many times he mm-hmm. fell on his face in the playoffs. It was just like, we're coming back full force next year. So that's why I dubbed the Toronto fans, the termites, because you just can't get rid of them no matter what. It was a, actually kind of a nod of appreciation to their loyalty one of my favorite stories, though, I went up to um, Almont, Ontario. Have you ever been there by any chance? No, I don't. Even, I can't even point it on a map, if I'm being completely honest. So I drove from Toronto. It took multiple hours. I don't know how many KMs that is, because there's wow. a lot of miles. Wow. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and like the last, you know, probably hour of it, there was no stoplights. It was all like uh, stop signs and what are those the roundabouts, you mm-hmm. know? And I'm just like, wow, we're way out here. I guess it's like hockey country. But anyway, this was the birthplace of James Naismith. And I was like going on a pilgrimage to like find out about the inventor of basketball. This is like one of the dorkiest things anyone could possibly do. But I was doing it for a story because the finals were in Toronto for the first time, right? For a story. So I went to the Naismith (laughs) Bar and Lounge. I went to the Naismith Museum. I actually went to the Naismith Elementary School and helped indoctrinate, you know, the next generation of basketball fans. It was a real tour of the Naismith thing. But my point here is that I was doing the man or woman on the street interviews, trying to find out if anyone in this small little town cared at all about basketball, like really cared, or was it more of a hockey town? And I ran into these four women who were having like a shopping weekend that, you know, and they were like, you know, kind of going to the little town to buy clothes or whatever. And they were the only people who were like nice enough to talk to me and like actually have a conversation. And none of them cared about the rappers except one of them whose son was obsessed with DeMar DeRozan. And so I think for like his 16th birthday, they had driven from even further north of this town all the way to Toronto. And they only had enough money to buy one ticket. So they all waited around outside the arena while the son went in to watch DeMar DeRozan play some random regular season game. And then they drove all the way back home because they didn't want to spend money on the hotel. So we're talking about like, you know, this was like a 14 hour commitment for this family where they're like loaded up into a camper van to go see like, you know, the chosen one Damar. And when I heard that story, I was just like, these are my people. Like, how can I really make fun of them? I mean, the termites thing, it's a, it's a phrase of endearment because there's like some real, just random diehards, like way in the woodworks and it spread like crazy here, obviously during the title run and all that too. So um, it's very affectionate and uh, I just love that you guys punch back. You know, I think that uh, mm-hmm. not every fan base does that. They just get in their feelings and Raptors fans are going to go for the throat. I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually a very sweet story. I, I think the, the DeMar love comes from, okay, this is my personal theory as a fan that the, we, the North era, like when that campaign launched, I mean, first of all, I think it's one of the most successful like sports campaigns ever, the whole, we, the North thing. 
it gave us permission to be patriotic about the Raptors because before that being a Raptors fan was more like you kind of like shrug your shoulders. You almost like, like lower your body language a bit in a way. And you're like, yeah, I'm a Raptors fan, you know, and you're just, you, you know, and then you would meet somebody that would maybe also be a Raptors fan and be like, Oh, you too. But it was like, it was so far from being like a mainstream thing, even like, the Leafs have been notoriously not great for the last 20, 25 years. Being a Leafs fan is just normal here. And being a Raptors fan was a bit more of an other. And then the We the North thing just gave us permission to be so loud and proud. And then DeMar just like embracing being a part of Toronto, embracing being here. Just, I don't know. It just unearthed all this uh, energy, I guess is the best way I could describe it. And so that's why like, we love him so much. And it's so funny, like even now, like we're kind of going through it with Kyle and it's so funny to me to hear like American podcasts, like debate whether or not he's a hall of famer, because here in Canada, we're just like, where is the statue going? Is he yeah, put the statue charge? Up. Is he <laughs> like, is he throwing a pass? What does the statue look like? Like that is the bigger debate. And, uh, I don't know. We just, yeah, we were very loyal, but yeah, the Gary, Trent Jr. pandering is really on point. He figured that out right away. And Genius move for a contract year. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really is. And uh, going back to your Nick Nurse Maple Leafs thing, I mean, the, I think it's just a matter of when, not if. I'm sure he'll <laughs> he'll get to that eventually. He did go to a Leafs game. Uh, of course, he did. Before, oh, he said he's just, in the box. I don't know. I don't think he was sitting in a box, but it was like just before the playoff run that led to the championship. It was, uh, yeah, like early April that year that he went to a Leafs game and everybody was like, oh, look at him. He's going to a Leafs game. But I was more like he wears a different pair of glasses than he does when he coaches. And that was the thing that I cared about because I love him. Yeah, I, I could see that. No, I, the statues thing is really interesting because that was one of the first things that I noticed when I went to uh, the Toronto finals was just the overwhelming number of hockey statues. And then you see all the banners up in the arena and you're like, God, they probably got 20 more people they want to make statues of. I mean, look at this like yeah. proud history, you know? And so for Toronto, it, I mean, for the, the Raptors, that is, it, it very much is kind of this big brother, little brother thing that we get in LA here too with the Lakers and the Clippers. We're like, the Lakers mm -hmm. have all these statues out front. The Clippers probably one day will get a Chris Paul statue, maybe, but also maybe not. Really? You think and then a Chris it, Paul statue? Well, he's like Captain Clipper. He kind of turned the whole franchise around. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. again, like he's had so many stops since then that it kind of changes that narrative and he never really got them through. But there was a little bit of like a local commotion, especially when he left of like, this is going to be the guy who gets it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that repeated again with Blake Griffin and they just like stabbed him in the back and traded him like, eight, you know, six yeah. months after they signed him that contract extension. So that probably canceled the uh, statue plans for him. Um but it's like the same deal in the buildings with Lakers and Clippers where you have all these banners for the Lakers or even the Kings hockey team. And the Clippers are like, here's our division banner, like one, you know, and like we have as many banners as Taylor Swift has, you know, she had her own banner in Staples Center for a while. So um, <laughs> I guess I was just glad to see the Raptors get their, uh, get their championship banner, kind of balance things out in the Raptors a little bit. And mm -hmm. they definitely need at least one statue. Um, if not more, because it just, it feels a little empty. It feels too uh, off balance when you're walking around that building, especially when they're drawing thousands of people to those outdoor, um, you know, Jurassic park game celebrations. Like they got to have some sort of a totem out there that they should be like, you know, getting excited about, 
Like, if you ever won again, don't you want to climb up on top of the Kyle Lowry statue and take your picture? Like, that seems like an iconic thing that all the fans should have. So get it done, Masai. You know, what are you doing? (laughs) I have, like, a uh, – this might be a bit of a hot take as a fan, but I am very pro having a low bar for statues. Like, (laughs) I don't care who we have statues of. Like, you know – You want a Bargnani statue? (laughs) Okay, no, I would be upset if we had a Bargnani statue. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I would rather have a Jose Calderon statue before I had a Bargnani statue. But uh, No, you you said the word low bar, and it was, like, free association. Bargnani's, like, picture just, like, popped into my mouth. There's that hilarious photo they had in the arena of him where, like, his mouth, like, I don't know if they still have it, but, like, his mouth is wide open. He's looking all confused, and it's, like, Mm -hmm. a really unflattering photo of him. I remember (laughs) seeing it, like, at All-Star Weekend in 2016, and I was, like, did the employees who put this up, were they as disgusted by the Bargnani era as like all the fans were? And like, they were like putting this photo of him in the building to like remind everyone how bad it could get. Right. Or like, yeah, hey, don't take anything for <laughs> granted because if I was him, I'd be like, can we just take that down? Like, you know, sometimes your friends like post pictures of you on social media and you'll be like, God, you know, I just look terrible. I got bags under my eyes, like 20 pounds too heavy, whatever it might be. And you're just like, Hey, can you take that off the internet, please? Um, I feel like that would be Barmiani in that moment, wa- walking like, you know, for his big comeback to Toronto. Like, God, this is horrible. I don't want to be remembered like this. Get rid of it. Barmiani had an Instagram profile bio that didn't even list that he was a former NBA player. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure the feelings mutual. <laughs> Wait, what's he what's he doing now? Like, oh god, he's like he's like and... a DJ and he's oh, like an perfect, influencer. Yeah. yeah, it's all of that. Like, it's so many different. He had like ten different titles, and none of them was NBA player or former NBA player. Didn't even reference the Knicks. From number one pick straight to David Guetta or Guetta, whatever his name is. Yeah. What a what a career arc for him, boy. Yeah, that's a rough one. <laughs> But I think Toronto, uh, in all seriousness, should have a Joe Carter statue. He was part of the Toronto Blue Jays, you know, hit that Grand Slam home run, two-time champion. Like, we need a Joe Carter statue as well. I I also think we need bigger statues, honestly. Like, when I went to Chicago and saw the Michael Jordan statue for the first time, like, look, for for me, like, growing up as, like, a Michael Jordan stan, like, that was sort of sort of like my pilgrimage to Mecca, you know? Um, And it's like, I've been waiting to see this statue my entire life. I probably took 75 photos of the Jordan statue outside United Center the first time I saw it. I'm not exaggerating at all. And like (laughs) waiting for people to like get out of my frame and like getting low angle shots, like selfies over each shoulder. But honestly, it should have been probably 10 times bigger. I mean, it should have been 250 feet tall. I think. And like, you know, don't you think we should be thinking grander when it comes to these sporting icons? I mean, what else do we have going on? You know, look at some of these skyscrapers, hundreds of floors tall. And they're, you know, it's just cubicles. Great. Like, let's give us let's give us like a 10 story totem to Michael Jordan. Who's saying no to that? I don't know. If they did that here, the totem would also be a condo building because that's just how everything works here. Well, how big, how big would too big be for your Joe Carter statue? Like how could, how far could we stretch this? No, it could be, it could be massive. It could be as big as the, it could be, well, now it's the Rogers center. It could be as big as the Rogers center itself. I'm very like old school. Like I still want to call it Skydome. There's a few of us pretentious people that hold on to that. Um, And I'm one of them. 
this well, it's the same thing in Portland. They still call it uh, Rose Garden, which is an awesome name for a stadium, especially because roses are so big in Portland compared to Moda Center, which is like cool healthcare, like yay, overpriced right. healthcare, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, you know, you know who should get in on this is Dubai. Because you know how Vegas has like all the tacky <laughs> knockoffs of like <laughs> Eiffel Tower, right? And like all the other like, you know, there's a pyramid in Vegas. Like Vegas is like, hey, if you can't actually afford to go to the real destination, come here and like have the fake one and, you know, gamble and, you know, free flights home and everything, right? Dubai, though, unlimited resources. Should they have like a sporting icons like statue gallery where it's just nothing but 200 foot tall statues? I'm talking messy um lebron probably jordan joe carter we could throw him in there maybe um kyle lowry i mean whoever else you want to throw in like they have unlimited i mean if dubai got a kyle lowry statue before we did that'd be pretty crazy well they have like indoor uh, like snow uh skiing like in dubai somehow you know they have everything because money's not an object i think that's where we want to go put our statue garden well, I think that's a good point. Also, like, why doesn't the NBA just do games there? Like, you know how they always do preseason games, like, internationally? Why not do one in Dubai? I think that'd be huge. Careful. It, it's coming. We're probably going to do, like, a single-site 2024 NBA Finals where everybody has to go to Dubai for two weeks to help dig out of the pandemic uh, financial <laughs> losses. It's like, sponsor the NBA Finals brought to you by Qatar Airways. Um, but you would not love to impossible. Go to, you would love to go oh. to Dubai and cover it. Actually, this is one of the, my takeaways from the bubble experience. Um, and I mentioned this in the book too, like the lack of travel during the playoffs was so much better for me as a writer, selfishly, actually a lot better for the players in terms of quality of play. The referees were raving about it. Everybody was raving about it. And so the Super Bowl has become this big festival, like two weeks, you go there mm-hmm. for media day, everybody goes, you know, kind of goes to this uh, single city and has a great time. You're kind of bringing fans from all over the place. You're selling tons of tickets. You know, you're selling a lot of merchandise and everything. The NBA Finals is very cool because it rewards the home fans now, like, you know, for Raptors fans when they had the finals in 2019. Mm-hmm. It was just absolutely insane atmosphere. Yeah. Um, building was rocking, maybe rocking a little too loud when Kevin Durant got injured. We're not going to bring up old <laughs> We can We can bring uh, that up if you need to. <laughs> not, not the termite's best moment, I would say. Um, but no. imagine throwing the finals in London or Dubai or Paris, Shanghai, Beijing, Rome, whatever. And then it's just, Hey, look, this is the NBA's festival for this two week period. Every year, we're just going to this place. It's going to be high level basketball because they don't have to travel. Everybody can just focus on the games. If you want to go there and, you know, do your little like affiliated party or your network branding event or whatever else, everybody goes to one spot and that's just what we do it. And we take over the sports landscape for two solid weeks in June. That seems awesome to me. It also seems way better for me personally than flying back and forth across country and going (laughs) through customs like three or four times. I think the idea has merit. I really think they should consider it. Well, I can see why this would be a good idea for you. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They should play it in my living room in front of only me. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about the rest of the fans. I mean, I think like internationally, like the Raptors do have a ton of fans because there were a lot of fans in Golden State. Kind of surprised me. There was thousands who went to Oakland. The ticket prices were super expensive. They were really loud in that building. I remember they were kind of punking the Warriors fans at the end of that series. It was like awkward because Oracle was always known as like one of the loudest buildings, right? And it got, it changed the last couple of years there just because the ticket prices were so crazy. All the tech money came in. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a different fan base. 
But the Raptors fans mobbed really hard for game six. They were super loud. When it was over, I remember them jumping up and down, chanting um, on mm-hmm. the court. Security mm-hmm. was like very frustrated with how many fans were still there celebrating. <laughs> as we saw with the whole Masai Ujiri incident as well. But like even yeah. afterwards, like they were, you know, just antsy with how many people were there. So again, credit to the Raptors fans. I think they would travel. Like I think that there would probably be at least 5,000 Raptors there's fans so who'd be like, we're so going to wealthy. Dubai. <laughs> There's so many wealthy Raptors fans. That's what I learned uh, winning a championship. That's the one thing people don't tell you about winning is that it gets expensive. Winning is expensive yeah. <laughs> uh, as a fan. Like I, I thought like, okay, I'm going to save so much money to see them in the finals. And like, I saved like a couple grand and then I was like, oh, I'm not doing this. This is, this is no, I'd rather be at a bar with my friends. It's too much. It, it, it's really is too it. much. Yeah. Yeah. They should yeah. do some sort of a lottery system for the 300 level seats or something like that. You know, where like if you can prove you've been to a diehard fan for so many years, you can get entered into a lottery and like pay a reasonable price. Like, because the gouging part is is pretty rough. It's bad here in LA too. Like, I'm imagining, well, especially last year, like the celebrities who would have been at the Lakers final mm-hmm. run, like it would have been all celebrities. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It would have been like influencers are in the 300 level. You know, we have like television stars in the 200 level and then the movie stars <laughs> and, and like major <laughs> pop singers are courtside. You know, it would have been a very tiered experience and yeah, who knows? Um, maybe it was better. The Lakers one in the bubble. Now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Well, we you, got, you, you got champagne sprayed on you that way. I don't know if that would have I, happened in a, in a non pandemic year. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, in hindsight, should I have put a picture of myself doused in champagne looking like a wet cat in my first book? Will I regret that 10 <laughs> or 15 years from now? Fair question, right? I mean, it's an amazing story, though. And like I get made fun of about it for so long. But like the Lakers win this title after more than three months living at Disney World, where they're like used to like mansions and like super fancy cars and they can't drive anywhere. They're stuck in a hotel basically all they're doing is playing video games and meditating as far as I can tell. Cause you know, there's fishing, there's like nothing else to do. And they're in a normal hotel room. Like you would go to, if you were like a family of four from Michigan on a road trip to Disney world, you know, pack everybody in the Honda Odyssey. We're going to Disney world. We're going to go stay in LeBron's room. Um, <laughs> and they get to the very end, they win it all. And instead of being like, yeah, we're the world champions. They're coming down the hallway screaming, we're free. We're bleeping free. We're free. We get to go home is what they're celebrating. And so it was like this combination of New Year's Eve combined with um, college graduation, which I've just really never seen anything like it. And then the sad part, and this is where the champagne comes in, is they didn't really have anyone else to celebrate with. You know, like LeBron has to like FaceTime his mom, have this beautiful conversation with his mom. Mm -hmm. And because she couldn't be there in the bubble because it's not safe, you know, and there, there, there was limits about how many people could kind of come down. There's like less than 200 people in the arena. You know, I, when I was playing basketball for the Beaverton Running Beavers, what a team name in sixth grade. Um, we would go out to like Eastern Oregon for tournaments and have, you know, randomly hundreds of people watching these games, not because we were good, just because there's nothing else going on. We're drawing a bigger crowd for the Beaverton Running Beavers in like 1991 than the 2020 um, NBA finals, you know, poor LeBron. Wow. And so they've got all this champagne. They get tired of spraying each other and they're just like, all right, well, the only other people here are the media guys. <laughs> Better just douse them and, and make sure they're like head to toe soaked. So that's what happened. Pictures came out hilarious. Videos came out hilarious. And it really was a nice ending to a crazy, quirky three month period that was like pretty hard. And 
you know, it, it kind of did feel like even for us, it was like a graduation experience. You know, we, the people who were in the bubble kind of refer to each other as like alumni kind of like we have mm-hmm. some sort of like weird group. And uh, part of the reason is because we all left Disney world smelling like really gross alcohol. <laughs> we can always remember that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Like, did you have like a, a real like bonding experience with the few other like media that were allowed to be there? Like, were you, did you have like your regulars that you like hung out with or like shared little tidbits with? Yeah. So we all kind of lived basically in the same dorm and I thought I was really funny. So I, I coined it the type house, sort of like the hype house from TikTok, but since we're all writers, it was going to be the type house. This mm-hmm. did not catch on whatsoever. I thought it was brilliant. Every, everyone else is like, what's TikTok? So that did not go out so well. Um, look, I mean, part of it was everyone who's there works super hard to be like who they are, right? And so like everybody's just like locked in and there's a, a competitive aspect as well, I would say in terms of, you know, you're, you're working for story angles. You're trying to like, you know, cover different aspects of the experience before other people do. And so there was a competitive factor to it for sure. But there was definitely a collegiality, especially as kind of the, the time wore on. Um, but keep in mind, though, we had really strict rules. Like, you know, we, had, we were being tracked by devices that would beep if we got too close to each other. So, you know, it was OK to kind of hang out outdoors by the pool if you wanted to do that. But I mean, you couldn't really do almost anything indoors together because that would be violating the protocols. You're supposed to space out for all the meals. And so it really was a pretty isolating experience. Now you would see the same people at the games every single day. And, and during the press conferences, we'd sit there and, you know, talk before and afterwards. But I mean, it, it was really, it was a business trip. It was really intensive. I mean, I went down there, mm-hmm. I put on weight, I slept like crap. My anxiety was way up. I felt isolated from my parents. I mean, all the stuff that the players uh, complain about, I was experiencing too. And I didn't even have to play. I was just down there writing. And so, um, you know, it was basketball heaven in a way because you get to watch every single game. I went, I went to every single playoff game from the second round on, which can like basically never be done. I mean, even Jimmy Goldstein, you know, like the big, like famous uh, fan who wears all the crazy clothing and sits courtside at the Lakers, even with the private jet and unlimited money, he could never go to every single playoff game from the second round on. It's just not mm. you know possible in a normal year. So that was like the great part and the really rewarding part about it. Uh, but it was tough. And I, I do think some bonds formed for sure among people who were there, but um I would say just like it was a microcosm of quarantine life. It was still very isolating. You know, you weren't allowed to have mm-hmm. guests in your room really for any reason. Um, you know, that would be a violation that would get you kicked back into quarantine. Uh, one guy who showed up about halfway through from a media standpoint was just like getting some fresh air on his front porch of his hotel room uh, because the windows didn't open and he, you're stuck inside for a mm-hmm. full week during quarantine. That got him an extra quarantine period because he couldn't even be sitting wow. right out front of his door. So, I mean, this was, it was no joke. I mean, I've never felt more monitored, more watched. There was video surveillance. There was four different types of either security or law enforcement, you know, different levels, sheriffs, deputies. Yeah. I mean, you had the the Disney security, NBA security, sheriff's deputy, police. Um, I mean, it was, it was the real deal. And uh, I mean, one night I was just walking around getting my steps in and I had a security guard roll up on me and demand to see my papers. Basically, I was like, let me see your credential, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, I had it with me, but like, what happens if I didn't, you know? Right. <laughs> like, wow. So, I mean, it was, um, it was, it was really intense, but here's the, the payoff was nobody got sick. And so from that standpoint, I, I came away thinking like the trade-offs were worth it. You know, it was better that 
we all didn't get sick because some NBA player went to a strip club and they never found out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was better that we all didn't have to worry about a life or death virus because the protocols worked. So I was, I was actually grateful for it by the end, but I was also glad to get back home and just not have big brother kind of like sit over my shoulder every second, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I can only imagine. I uh, actually did want to ask you about uh, getting your steps in because I remember you you filmed this thing when you first arrived and you were showing us how you were pacing back and forth in your hotel room uh, when you were in quarantine. I how did you keep your sanity just during that initial period? How has this become my legacy? You know, I've been writing about the NBA since 2007, and everybody knows me as the guy, the crazy guy walking back and forth uh, in his room. It's hilarious. It's actually one of the blurbs on my book from the legendary writer Jack McCallum. He brought up that same video. I think that, look, I felt like I was kind of the face of the pandemic at that point because everybody was just bottled up and sick of being at home. And so, like, here's this guy who's even more bottled up than they are, acting like a hamster in a wheel. And they're just waiting for us to crack. And it wasn't just that video, by the way. I did dozens of interviews when I first got down to the bubble. Mm -hmm. And basically the gist of every interview was like, are you about to die? I mean, that was really like the way that people were coming at it. Because I think there was just a rubberneckers aspect to it of like, what is this crazy science fiction thing? How is it going to go wrong? You know, who's putting their life at risk? And it was just, there was a a morbid curiosity. I mean, it wasn't like people were rooting for me to die. (laughs) It wasn't like that. (laughs) But it was, you know, there was that, that, that tension to it of like, look, we're all stuck here in, you know, probably the worst year of most of our lives. And here's somebody who might have it a little bit worse or a little bit weirder. And so let's just kind of glom on and, and see what it's about. For me, the, the steps video, you know, I was like pretty seriously committed to fitness and I have been ever really since the start of the pandemic, because I just thought it was a great opportunity to kind of get to a better place from a wellness standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to lose all my streaks. So this was just actually what I was doing every single day because there was nothing else to do because um, I was stuck in my hotel room. The only time I could leave for a week was to get uh, my nose swab for the COVID test. And that took about 90 seconds, right? The mm-hmm. rest of the day you're inside. And so I was just trying to get some exercise in. I think people identified with it. The funny part was the brands came out, Captain. They're like, yo, we want to sponsor you for our at-home workout. You know, we got a video... <laughs> And we're going to send you, you know, go to our YouTube page and you get a T-shirt like everybody was like all everybody was uh, coming out of the woodworks on that one. Um, but, you know, I think and you that didn't take all, advantage of any of them. Well, we got ethical policies at The Washington Post, you know, oh, so, uh, come on. yeah, no, you're telling no, me you couldn't do like your own little Peloton and it's just you going on a walk like on a bird walk. So what you're hoping for me to do is like basically get like a BG hat, a birder's hat, right? Sort of like Nick Nurse and really just brand it. You know, I might be able to do it if it was me, but like any kind of outside company is is where it gets kind of confusing, right? Um, Right. So I think long story short on the pacing video, it did kind of set the tone for the entire bubble experience, right? People sort of understood like there are sacrifices involved here. Like if this is what these people are up to, um, this is maybe harder than we realized. And I think that the longer we were there, the more the players opened up and were honest with their feelings about how it was going. And Paul George was talking about, you know, kind of depression and anxiety, um, you know, getting into a rut, you know, Danny green was like begging to have his dog be able to come because he just mm-hmm. thought it would lighten the mood. And he just missed his dog. LeBron over and over again was talking about how much he missed his kids and the different, um, uh, events that he was missing at that standpoint and throw all on top of it, the players 
really felt isolated from the social justice movement because they couldn't be out in the streets protesting like they had been earlier that summer. And they're in the middle of a uh, presidential election year, taking all this heat from Trump over various stuff like the national mm-hmm. anthem protests and everything else. And they're kind of bottled up or, you know, the Breonna Taylor ruling comes down and they've got to go play a game. Right. And so those were really, really tough feelings of confinement. And that's a main theme I bring out in the book is just kind of talking about how did I get to a place where I was pacing back and forth in that hotel room? (laughs) And why did that sort of symbolize what we were all kind of going through that stasis feeling of the bubble? Well, I think like one thing that I feel was somewhat forgotten just between then and now was just the uncertainty of it all. Like, I think we kind of take it for granted now that it all worked out. And we kind of think like, oh, like, of course it all worked out. There weren't any cases. But I remember like initially going into it, nobody knew it would if it would work or not. There was so much uncertainty around it. I mean, I remember just as a fan, like watching that first game back and watching all the players kneel, feeling pretty emotional about the whole thing. Like, did did you feel a lot of those emotions inside? Did people feel uncertain about what they were doing and whether this was right or not when they were there? A hundred percent. So I actually didn't get my health clearance to go actually be accepted in the bubble until less than 24 hours before the bubble opened. Uh, Cause I've had open heart surgery twice because of like a congenital defect. And so obviously that's like a complicating risk factor. And so for me, the whole run up, I was already pretty nervous and anxious. Like, how are these rules going to work? I mean, I was really studying their health plan because I didn't want to walk into some uh, situation that was going to, you know, compromise my long-term health in any way. And I talked to a whole bunch of doctors before I went down there, um, doctor, cardiologist, psychiatrist, like a bunch of different people. It's like, is this a good idea? Like, what am I getting myself into? Mm-hmm. And they actually all said, look, it's probably going to be safer down there than anywhere else in the world. So, you know, if you feel comfortable, you should go do it. And that was, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, calming. Uh, but when I first went down there, I brought a pair of Jordan sneakers, the black and red 11s that they mm-hmm. call the playoffs. And I, I brought my typical suits that I would wear to like playoff games or NBA finals. And I kind of paced it out. And I was like, look, I'm not going to wear these black uh, and red 11s until the playoffs actually start. And when I got down there, I was like, yeah, there's probably like a 90% chance I'm going to get to wear these. Like the bubble is not going to blow up <laughs> within like two weeks. Right. But it was still kind of like that carrot of like, okay, you're going to you know, be able to wear these shoes one day. And once we got there, I was like, heck yeah. And I wore them. I was so happy. I was like, mission accomplished. We all did it. We made it to the playoffs. This is great. <laughs> but with the, with the suits, I wasn't going to wear them till the NBA finals. And when I first got down there, I was like, man, this is probably 50, 50. If I'm ever going to wear this, like, why'd I even bring these down here? Maybe I should have just had them shipped later. Like they're just going to be sitting here and like, maybe we're all going home in three weeks. So the uncertainty part was huge. And I, and I remember when we got to um, the finals, I was so excited to like break the suits out. We all took pictures on the court, like the NBA entertainment guys took pictures for us, which was really thoughtful of them. And yet that was the moment where Adam Silver really first came down to the bubble for the first time to actually live in the bubble for the finals. Mm -hmm. And so they cranked all the rules up to like 11 because the boss was in town. Right. So (laughs) the uncertainty was still there. And he was giving interviews saying like, my favorite emoji is the finger crossed emoji. Like he was, paranoid himself like he because he really wanted to make it through with no positive test because it's such a legacy thing for them to say Mm -hmm. hey we kept everybody uh, safe and and crowned a champion so right up into the end I mean we're getting text messages no eating in the arenas no drinking water here and there like make sure you don't do anything with uh, people indoors like just like kind of spamming us with these reminder text messages and we're all sitting there saying I've been here for three months I know the rules like get off my back you know but uh, the uncertainty was 
was a factor the whole way through. I will say after about three weeks though, when we got a couple of those emails saying nobody's tested positive, I really did kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And I was like, look, these rules are working. You know, their yeah. protocols are rough, but they have eliminated the high risk areas and they've done a great job with it. And so, you know, my mind was at ease, even if I was like, you know, we're still kind of living this day-to-day existence. I, I wanted to ask you about legacies as well, because I felt just as an outsider that out of all the the people, whether it was Adam Silver or any of the players, it really felt like LeBron James was, was pushing for this more than anybody because he kind of, from an outside perspective, has a lot on the line in terms of like winning uh, another ring and adding that and getting closer to chasing Jordan in terms of being like the greatest of all time. And even when the NBA strike happened, it seemed like he was the one that was like, no, we want, we should keep going after all. Did you kind of get that sense from LeBron as well? So LeBron had the most to gain. There's no question about it because, you know, the GOAT conversation and him trying to get closer to six rings, like that's the biggest stakes there could be. It was also a unique circumstance because you had no Steph Curry, no Kevin Durant, no Kyrie Irving. And then pretty quickly, once we were in the bubble, no Giannis, no Kawhi. So just by process of elimination, LeBron is like the biggest star relative to like everybody else by a large factor. Right. And, And that was just because guys were injured or their teams hadn't performed well or whatever else. So it was a little bit unique in terms of magnifying the attention on him even more than it usually is, but obviously he's the biggest star in the game. Um, I think uh, from his perspective, his life is pretty empty without basketball, right? I mean, this guy, he's always said like, (laughs) I keep the main thing, the main thing, like all these guys were going nuts. You know, if you really love the game, you know, and, and it's shut down in the middle of March and you're not getting the payoff for your months and months of work and potentially an opportunity to chase Jordan is now up in the air. Like, you're going to do anything you possibly can to kind of bring it back together. Right. And and there was big sacrifices for him. I really do think like the mega wealthy players were the ones who had the biggest quality of life differences. Right. Like I live in a one bedroom apartment and drive a Ford. Like Kawhi (laughs) takes a helicopter to games. Right. And probably has every car he could possibly want. Same deal with LeBron. I mean, he's got people who drive his kids back and forth to school, you know. Mm -hmm. So to go from their normal lives to the bubble was a big sacrifice. But ultimately, like it was in their best interest to do it, not only for the financial health of the sport to kind of keep it going, but just for also like their day to day happiness and sanity and fulfillment. Right. So, um you know, I think ultimately he was not only the center of attention because of how well he played and winning finals MVP and claiming the fourth title and being the best player in the bubble kind of start to finish, uh, but also because of the off-court stuff. I mean, this guy was doing press conferences about Brianna Taylor, mm-hmm. Jacob Blake, gun control, President Trump, voting rights activism, um, George Floyd, police brutality like the list goes on like he would i mean it was like sermons you know after these games where he would just go super deep he was calling out reporters saying you know like look i know you guys are with us you're never really going to understand us if you're white right i mean he was getting into ideas of white privilege like he was taking it some pretty advanced places for random post-game press conferences because that was just Mm -hmm. where we were as a country uh, before this recent presidential election he's getting into issues of patriotism with the flag and so um I came away, my biggest takeaway from this, and I mentioned in the book, is that this was just such a unique, up-close look at greatness in the form of LeBron. Like, I am I would always say Jordan's the greatest of all time. But to watch 
how he balanced all these different things to watch how he was preparing his mind. I mean, he'd meditate, do deep breathing exercises before these games to keep himself sharp. He picked apart the nuggets basically with turnaround jumpers doing like a Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan impression. It wasn't above the rim stuff. It was all below the rim stuff. It was just beautiful and really impressive to watch. And just to see how higher of a level he's thinking the game than basically all of his peers in the bubble. And they just go 16 and five through everybody and, and, and take Jimmy's best shot. I mean, incredible shot from Jimmy in the finals mm-hmm. and still, you know, live to tell the tale in six games. I mean, um, it was, it was just mind blowing. I mean, all around. And I really try to capture, you know, my feelings of gratitude to having been able to see that up close because it was a better look than I've got even covering his other titles or his other finals runs because it was a more intimate setting. It was just more humanizing. And because, I mean, he was just on 11 the whole time. There was no days off for LeBron. He said it in his post-game press conference, the importance of availability. And it wasn't just from a health standpoint. It was leadership towards his teammates. It was his obligations to the media. It was his role as an ambassador for the sport. I mean, all of it was pretty wild. And I know there's going to be some people out there who just roll their eyes and say like, all right, all right, enough about LeBron. Like, we saw this last month. What does the NBA look like when he's not out there? It's a lot different. It's a lot <laughs> different. And the sport, mm-hmm. um, you know, really a lot of it runs on him. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a biased Raptors fan of really 180 on LeBron, like I, <laughs> like for a long time, he was just like my favorite villain. And now it's I a just grim reaper for you guys. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, and now I, I just, I absolutely love him and admire him and like, and everything he stands for. I, I want to ask you about the NBA strike because I remember watching you kind of go through this in real time, like being like getting ready to watch the, the bucks magic game, which I feel like in a pre pandemic time is not a, a game you would even attend. Um, and you're kind of like getting your stuff ready and then you're sort of noticing like oh the bucks aren't taking the core oh my god this is really happening what was that like for you and how did you kind of uh transition into covering this whole other story that centered around the the shooting of jacob blake and the nba taking a stand that was the wildest week of the whole thing i mean it's the most the most memorable playoff game i've ever attended was the one that didn't get played so Mm -hmm. that's i mean that's the easiest way to say it um, this was also a good example of the um, the lack of travel that I'm describing because you're saying, well, would you normally attend that game? Well, I would never be in Milwaukee for a first round series, right? But on that day, the scheduled games had Giannis in the first game, Chris Paul, James Harden, Russell Westbrook in the second game, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard, Carmelo Anthony in the third game. That's eight Hall of Famers over an eight-hour period. So, of course, I'm going to be in the gym for eight hours. You know what I mean? Like, what an Mm. opportunity to be able to watch all those guys just back-to-back-to-back. They're just, you know, again, dropping them in your lap, right? So I went to that game because I was thinking, well, the Bucs are probably going to be in the finals, so I better see every step of the way what these guys are doing. I set everything up, and it was clear pretty quickly that things weren't quite right. And the previous night, I had uh, we did a press conference with Doc Rivers, and they had won by, like, 30 points. He was super happy. And yet pretty quickly into his press conference, it got really emotional. Mm -hmm. He gave the famous speech about, you know, there's kind of two Americas. And I was kind of asking him after that speech, like, what's going to happen if these guys try to boycott? You know, you were in that situation with Donald Sterling uh, had the racist tapes and your players didn't want to take the court in the playoffs in like 2014. Like, what's your game plan here? How do you handle this? What's your advice to the players? And when I was first asking him the question, I got the sense that like he hadn't really considered that that could happen. And I followed up like once or twice and 
he was like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, this really could happen. He was very careful. And he's like, I just want to make it clear. Like if the players boycott, I'm with the players. And the very next night, Wednesday night, he is in a room with all the players trying to mm-hmm. decide whether they're going to keep the bubble going or not. And he's trying to give them advice and, and give them uh, his thoughts on like, you know, the importance of you know carrying the sport forward and all that. So this whole thing unfolded really, really quickly. It's one of my favorite parts of the book because I go through almost minute by minute on that day. It's sort of like a TikTok version, not the social media app, but like, you know, the, <laughs> the very detailed, uh, you know, scene by scene experience of what it was like to cover that um, shutdown. I mean, the part that I'll never forget, I'm, I'm kind of snooping around the lock, uh, the, the arena, just trying to see what's going on. I peek my head in the Orlando Magic uh, locker room and Nikola Vucevic is looking back out towards the door. And he's got a look on his face like, what the heck is going on? He's looking right. exactly like I am. So I make, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of like, oh, okay. Well, if he doesn't know, <laughs> then nobody knows. If the players aren't in on this thing, then, you know, everybody's been kind of caught by surprise. Mm-hmm. I kept walking and I'm getting hassled by security. Oh, you can't stand here. You can't stand there. I'm like, all right, well, something's definitely going on. And I get over by the, um, the Bucks locker room and it just turns into this good old fashioned stakeout. You know, it's like somebody just robbed a bank and we're all hanging out, like waiting for them to come I mean, It was, it kind of had bad feel to it of like nervous anticipation. <laughs> what's their statement going to be? How long is this going to take? Are they going to try to wait us out and just like hang out in this little locker room? And keep in mind, this is not a nice NBA locker room. This is just like a concrete room that they've like converted into the locker room for this bubble experience, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not even a bathroom in that locker room. So after about an hour and a half, of these guys making phone calls back to talk to Jacob Blake's father, to talk to the attorney general of Wisconsin to kind of figure out like kind of what can be done here. The players start trickling out one by one to use the restroom because they hadn't really like thought this thing through that. Like, well, you know, we're going to be bunkered down here all afternoon. Like eventually, you know, nature is going to call. And so we had these, you know, kind of honestly awkward situations where the players would walk out, walk right by the media media was very respectful wasn't like bombarding them with questions they would try to avoid eye contact use the restroom and then walk back into the locker room as they prepared their statement mm-hmm. and finally after about three hours they came out and, and had a you know i thought a pretty powerful message delivered by george hill and sterling brown you know talking about everything but by that point they were already ground zero for the entire international media right i mean that night mm-hmm. within hours they're on all the major news stations. They're on the front page of all the major newspapers. Their decision not to take the court spread to other sports. So like baseball, WNBA, NFL are canceling practices, postponing games. I mean, whatever else it might be. And it just took off like absolute crazy. So I don't think that they really premeditated a ton of it. I don't think that they anticipated the reaction to be as big as it was. And I thought that all things considered, both sides, the players and the owners, actually acted really deftly uh, to put the season back together, um, you know, to be able to like compromise, come up with what is it that the players want um, and to make sure that, you know, they weren't going to be down there staring at each other across a conference table for a week and a half because, um, you know, everybody was so upset. So I think all things considered, it was a, a story about a protest, but it was also a story of pragmatism, right? Of like, hey, if we just don't do this, we're losing a billion dollars. The CBA is going to get blown up. The owners are going to come after us and this is mm-hmm. going to get really ugly. So how can we spin this forward into a positive? And, and they eventually did that, um, but completely unforgettable day. And, and to me, the single most memorable moment from the entire bubble experience. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, what I'm really looking forward to reading the book is how this is also just very much a political story and very much a story about how this experience is kind of mirroring what's going on in the world. And we're just seeing it like through this lens. The other significant thing that happened during the bubble was the Breonna Taylor ruling in her case. Did you notice like just like a different sense and energy like were people feeling more like riled up about it did you feel a a sense of like defeatedness at all was it was it different than the jacob blake situation for sure i mean a clear contrast you know with jacob blake it was anger it was frustration it was like let's take to the streets basically was the Mm -hmm. was the feeling and like let's not go to work right let's shut this thing down we have to send a message i mean it, it was not just the Bucks, um, although they were the natural team because they were so close to Kenosha, but mm-hmm. it was a Raptors too. I mean, you heard Fred VanVleet. Yeah. He's like, you know, what do we even stand for here? You know, how can we just take this, right? Um, you know, at some point, enough's enough. Boston Celtics were the same way. Other teams were the same way. There were only four teams left by the time that the Breonna Taylor um, case came down. It was the, uh, the ruling that there weren't going to be charges. And all those teams had been in the bubble for basically like two months. So the anger and the passion and the energy that was there. And I mean, guys were still exhausted, honestly, at the time of the Jacob Blake ruling, which was, I think, part of it. They were just, you know, it was just everybody had a real thin patience at that point, right? It had kind of been stretched thin. By the time they got to the bubble, or by the time they got to the Breonna Taylor thing, two months into the bubble, it was resignation, right? It was like, Mm. how do you fight back against an entire system? Like in, in the Jacob Blake situation, you can have a lot of anger directed towards a police officer, right? Or towards like bad cops. In the Breonna Taylor ruling, it was this idea of like, well, it's judges, it's grand juries, it's politicians, it's the attorney general, it's this entire jurisdiction that's like bigger than anyone can really put a, uh, you know, put a finger on. There's no face to it. All we do is get these verdicts and rulings that we don't agree with. And what's our recourse, right? And so there was a lot of guys struggling to make eye contact in the interviews after the Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. uh, ruling came down. You know, it was a lot of quiet tributes. You know, people would write messages on their shoes. Um, you know, there was some pretty pointed comments, you know, to the effect of, you know, paying her off, like giving her family a money settlement, but not charging the cops was not justice. And I thought right. that those points were really well made, especially by the Miami Heat. I think that was uh, something that Spolstra had said. But yeah, there was a total change in energy. And some of it was just even more exhaustion, right? It's like defeatism, uh, despair, for sure. And that was tough. I mean, that was one of the hardest days, for sure, because you could just tell everybody was hurting and they had no way to kind of express it. And I think in the case of the shutdown, um, you know, with Jacob Blake, like, I think there was a level of satisfaction by the players. Like, they proved a point, right? They, they feel like they did something and contributed to society. And I think they're going to be remembered for it, too. You know, I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. it's going to be as long lasting as like 1968, but the next time a team considers a boycott or the next time there's a big time protest, everyone will always reference the bubble shutdown. I mean, it's just, it's going to become a part of American sports history. And with the Breonna Taylor ruling, I mean, it was just sadness really. Yeah. I I mean, and by the time we got to the finals, I don't think I've ever watched just so much exhaustion just I felt like watching both teams you could just see how unbelievably exhausted they were I feel like I've of course we've seen players exhausted before but I don't know if I've ever seen it quite on that level before and you know I mean give Miami credit at least they made it a a six game series but in my mind I was like I wonder if people are like can you just get swept so we can get out of here 
People were definitely like that. I mean, look, first of all, I booked my flight ticket home after uh, game two because I was sure it was going to be a sweep. And it was just because of the injuries. You know, yeah. I was like, look, you know, they have no shot here. The Lakers are going to run this thing. And they come back and win game three. So I have to push my flight back until after game five because I'm still sure, hey, you know, Lakers just gave one up. They're going to close this thing out after five. Jimmy comes back and has another amazing game and I have to book my flight. I have to change it again. So, you know, he forced me to change my flight twice, which I think is just perfect because I mean, Jimmy's the ultimate grinder. I actually wrote the first cover story he ever did um, for sports illustrated in 2015. And the tagline was all gas, no breaks, you know, basically Jimmy Butler never slows down that held up great. You know, finally I got one, right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, pretty, pretty easy call on that. And in terms of his personality, <laughs> I would say, uh, but like, everybody else would have folded in that moment except for Jimmy and Spo and the heat. So I love that it was them as kind of the foils in that um, spot because they didn't care if they were ruining everybody's travel plans going home. But you know, the media shuttle bus is back after these games. I remember talking to people and, you know, for weeks, the conversations had been like, what's your first meal going to be like when you're out of the bubble? Like, what's the first thing you're going to do? Are you going to try to go on vacation? Like those are the kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and Jimmy wins game three. And the conversations are like, uh, God, I cannot believe I've got to be here for another 48 hours. Did he really just do this? And he, and he pushes, he wins another one in game five and people are just like, you know, F this, like, I'm ready to go home. Like, you know, I was like, well, this is an incredible performance by Jim. You got to give him his credit. And it's like, no, I just want to get out of here. Wow. And I think for some people, I mean, it, there was a family aspect to it, right? You know, mm -hmm. I think if you had kids and it's this idea, like, look, if this game goes one way, you get to fly home and see your kids tomorrow, right? But if the game goes the other way, you don't get to see your kids for another three days and you haven't seen them for three months. That's a pretty heavy emotional mm -hmm. toll and it kind of weighs on people. And so I did my absolute best to protect uh, against the senioritis um, aspects to it, but it was impossible not to uh, yeah. because it was, especially in, in the finals and conference finals where there was just fewer games, there was just so much kind of empty time and so much waiting and you would just wait, wake up and if it wasn't a game day, you know, your 36 hour countdown kind of starts until like, when are we actually going to be back at the building? And, um, you know, and, and the whole time, like life is going on everywhere else around you outside the bubble and you're not participating. So um, absolutely, you know, you, th those kinds of feelings came in and it will be Jimmy's legacy that he kind of made every, he punished everybody, a guy who loves to punish himself, punished everybody <laughs> in the bubble by making them stay for an extra five days. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I uh, I have a couple fun Raptor bubble related questions as we wrap up here. Uh, I want to talk to you, of course, about the OG and an OB shot. Um, obviously, it was a it was a great moment, but in my opinion, maybe the greatest inbound pass to win a game of all time. Would you say so? Well, are you sure you haven't pre-read my book? Are you positive? I have not uh, pre-read. I pro well, it's not out yet. It's on pre-order. <laughs> I've not read the book. Okay, so I, I didn't. I didn't get you an advanced copy. That's my fault. Um, I make a very similar point. I love that pass from Kyle. The taco fall angle to it just made it all the better. Thank you. you know, it just raised it up to the next level. Um, my one of my other favorite passes about it though, and I kind of describe OG as being this quiet, unassuming guy. He is wide open and he doesn't even call for the ball. I thought that was hilarious. Like anyone else <laughs> in that situation, right? It was almost like he was trying to camouflage, right? Like he's like a lizard, yeah. like in a, in a sandbank, right? This is like, nobody can see me, right? Um, he's hiding out from the world. Here he is wide open and Kyle, of course, sees him, but it's not because OG is standing there waving both of his arms like most players, but like 
imagine if that was Michael Porter Jr. He probably would have had a whistle on the court. He would have probably mm-hmm. had like a bullhorn being like, I'm open, post me the ball. Like, you know, doing all the, uh, the <laughs> antics that some of these guys do, trying to get attention, right? OG's just standing there, mild-mannered, half-step to his right, catches it, splashes the three over Jalen Brown. Um, beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Probably probably the best shot of the bubble, I would say. I mean, all things considered. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luca had a great one. Anthony Davis had a great one. Um, and then the quotes afterwards were hilarious. I loved, you know, Kyle getting into his, like, old man, like, mentor mode of, like, yeah, you know, it was all about the shot. Give that kid all the credit. You know, he was, like, <laughs> Kyle lays it on really, really thick, probably thick with two Cs sometimes, too. Um, and so I, I, I appreciated that about him. Uh, but yeah, OJ being like, oh, I don't shoot to miss, you know, it's like, all right, OJ. Yeah, <laughs> okay, classic, thanks, classic buddy. Quote. <laughs> um, I mean, that pass, okay, that pass is so good, but also it it's to the point where I don't even understand how Taco Fall is a fan favorite of the Celtics. Like that guy had one job for five <laughs> seconds and failed. Like how, it, like in any other sports market, are you still a fan favorite? Like, I don't get it. Like, I compared it to me guarding an eight-year-old for five seconds and failing. Uh, I, under- I understand that take. I mean, the only thing I would say here is that Taco's, like, one of those guys who's, like, so nice that if you actually, like, brought this take to him, you'd probably start crying before you could get probably. it out because you'd, oh, for you'd, sure. feel so, you'd feel so <laughs> bad. Um, I mean, it was quite the year for Taco. I mean, getting jumped over during the dunk contest but not having that be good enough to win the dunk contest for oh, Aaron Gordon. True. And then, yeah, you're like the number one inbound specialist and having it backfire. And now you're remembered for all time for both of those things. And neither one of them is like necessarily that great. And most guys who are that tall don't actually like being that tall. They tend to like kind of slump their shoulders over a little bit. You know, uh, you know, they don't really want to be like, you know, it's impossible not to stand out for the crowd. But, you know, they're the kinds of guys who are like, haha, very funny. How's the weather up there? I have mm-hmm. never heard that mm-hmm. joke before. They just get it their entire life. Yeah. And now Taco is associated with his height in two kind of embarrassing moments within about a seven month stretch. That's going to probably be his, <laughs> his NBA legacy, right? Is being jumped over for the dunk contest and having that pass go over his hands. Yeah. That's rough. Taco didn't deserve that. You should be nicer to Taco. Okay. Well, that's, that's fair. I'm probably too hard on at least one player per episode of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. This is a very obscure question for all the questions you've been asked about the bubble. You definitely haven't been asked this. Okay. Right on. August 12th, there is a pre playoff game with the Raptors versus the Philadelphia 76ers. Nick nurse does not coach this game assistant coach adrian griffin steps in to take over just for kicks no other reason just for fun nick nurse is in the arena watching you wouldn't know this but on the broadcast they talked to nick nurse briefly and he slurred his words Uh so my question for you is were you there and was nick nurse drunk wow um (laughs) Look, I I didn't know this at all. This definitely is completely blowing my mind. I would say that just let me just set the stage. There is a gigantic warehouse where all the packages got delivered. And that was like one of the few areas that I actually had access to. And I would go check out like the warehouse like every single day because I mean, we're talking about like, imagine a Walmart only for millionaires, right? So it's like right. flat screen televisions. It's 
um, NBA Jam arcade games. It's extra, extra large mattresses. It's like barrels of shoes from Adidas. It's just like random Peloton bikes sitting there untouched because, oh, I already have three Peloton bikes. Why do I need a fourth, right? Like that was the vibe of this warehouse. They would bring entire UPS trucks in, like from Amazon, basically, unload the entire truck at the bubble. Like there was one stop for that UPS truck driver. Mm. It was the bubble. And then he would leave. So part of the whole warehouse experience was the alcohol delivery. And that was actually like the first thing that you would get to when you walked in. So let me just say that, yes, the bubble was disconnected from society, but alcohol was available for people who wanted alcohol. So I can't say, did Nick Nurse have a delivery at this warehouse? Did the Raptors have some sort of a team shipment? All I'm saying is like, it was accessible and, you know, personalized as well. I mean, people would have these like kind of custom orders and and it would all be laid out on this table. You could see people's names and everything. So, um, that was one aspect. And by the way, no, no um, drug policy during the bubble either. Although I didn't really like narc on anyone. I, I didn't see anyone violating, you know, they, they probably did it from the comfort of the hotel room, but there were, I guess my point is there was self-medication going on and cigars were very popular among the uh, referees kind of poolside. They, they take the edge off, play some cards uh, next to the pool and, and smoke, uh, you know, really smelly cigars uh, on a lot of different nights. So it's not impossible. It, long story short, um, but I'm not going to call him out like that in, in any situation. <laughs> that is more than fair. Um, my last Nick Nurse question, or really my last question, of course it's Nick Nurse because we always end this on a hot girl summer Nick Nurse highlight of the week, although that segment has been very disparaged over the last few months because uh, all the coaches just wear the same tracksuit every day now. But my question for you is, w- what is your favorite Nick Nurse highlight? Did you have a moment with him? Did you bond with him? What was that like for you? A couple of favorite Nick Nurse things. I mean, number one, um, so the, the, the OG play, mm-hmm. he described stealing from like a, a coaching DVD from some Hubie like- Brown. I, yeah, Hubie yeah. Brown DVD. L- like 15 or 20 years ago. And I think Mark Spears was the one who asked him about that. Mm. and his eyes lit up and it was like, yes, I would love to tell you the story about where I snagged that play from. And he just like (laughs) broke the whole thing down. And it was like too much. It was like very cute, too much detail. I'm definitely like a too much detail type of guy. Like you probably have heard from this episode when I'm discussing the, uh, the warehouse shipping depot. But um, the fact that, you know, he's a genius level thinker. I mean, a lot of these coaches are, but I would put him in that category. I mean, even just some of the things where he's like going center list late in that series against Mm -hmm. Boston and it like totally works. I mean, he's very, very creative and flexible minded and all of it. Um, And for him to be like, yeah, not only did that play work, but I can tell you exactly which part of my memory hole it came from and like why, and give us a whole backstory on the Hubie Brown part of it was really cool. The other thing that I appreciate about Nick nurse, and this goes back to the, um, the mental health management part, this dude really gets into wins and losses. I mean, really gets into wins and losses. So he would come out, the big, a lot of times the Raptors would actually have players talk first post-game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people have picked up on that. And usually, a lot of times in the bubble, Nurse would go after the players. Usually it's the other way around. Usually hmm. coach comes out, does the boilerplate thing, and then kind of the players take longer to get ready, and then they go. And, you know, so nurse would have like 20 or 30 minutes to cool off. And occasionally he would come into these press conference rooms 
And he would kind of sit there and do these like full body size, like almost like an exercise. Right. You know, and, and it almost seemed like he was trying to get his pulse rate down. Like he was still hopped up on that victory and he would do a lot of like the holding the bridge of his nose thing to mm. like center himself. And it reminded me a lot of LeBron before the games where he's going through meditation exercises, deep breathing stuff to get himself focused before these games. And, you know, half an hour after a game is a long time after the game, right? Like everybody's processed at that point, like what happened and like, you've done this hundreds and hundreds of times over the course of his career. He's done it thousands of times at all these different gyms. Right. So to still have that level of competitive fire for the result to still matter that much for it to like get to you in like a physiological way. Right. That's awesome to me. I'm just like, mm -hmm. yes, this dude is all in. It's all he cares about his, his life. It's, it's life or death here wins and losses. So I appreciated that last story for Nick nurse. He liked to get in the all black outfits and ride it and ride his bike way too fast around the bubble, like as fast as humanly possible. Like if he could go, like I think his thought was like, if he could go super fast, it could be like one of those Dorothy situations. And like, he'd be able to just kind of like go straight up in the air and get himself out. And so it was a great contrast because Spolster would walk really diligently around the bubble, almost like militaristically. He'd wear this heat culture t-shirt in like 95 degree swampy uh, conditions down in uh, Orlando and just be like a self parody of like, you know, mm -hmm. captain, um, you know, captain uh, consistency from Spolstra. Brad Stevens would be all amiable, walk around the bubble, always waving everybody. Hey, how's it going? He's a really nice guys. <laughs> He's like your neighbor, Brad, right. Who's like kind of an accountant or maybe, you know, some sort of like a, you know, mattress sales guy, whatever, you know, just walking around. And then here's nurse flying around on this bicycle. I'm sure it was a custom bicycle, probably had his initials on it to bring this thing full circle and <laughs> just as fast as he could go. Right. And, um, you know, I'm not saying people were like jumping out of his way, but it's like, well, there goes Nick nurse again. Well, there goes Nick nurse again. And it's, you know, it's only a mile and a half loop. So if I'm out there walking for like an hour, hour and a half, he's flying by like 15 times. Like he's in doing the tour to France just a, just a different cat, different breed. Wow. Wow. I love that. I got to say you, I, yeah, that seems like it, honestly, that seemed like it kind of worked you up there a little bit. That story, <laughs> like you got, you got a little excited. I love learning something new about him. Cause I, I like to think I know everything and then I learn something new and it's exciting, but uh, no. <laughs> I will say this. Now that I'm, I'm totally embarrassed here. Um, you posted this thing about your, your writing process and you, you showed us this very impressive spreadsheet with how you were able to uh, write this book in such a, a tight turnaround. You wrote it in two months, the two months after the, the bubble. And then you're like, well, if any other writers think this is crazy, let me know. Well, I am a writer, well, a screenwriter, not a journalist. And I have to tell you, this is very impressive. If any other writer tells you that you're crazy, they're a hater, they're a straight up hater, <laughs> because it really is all about the planning. You got to plan it out in order to execute it right. So good job, man. I'm really really excited for you. I'm really excited to read this book. Um, ben, just thank you again for being on the show. Uh, your book comes out May 4th. Uh, you also have, well, you could go through the rundown of uh, all the stuff that you do every week if you want. Be, be careful with that. We'll be here another hour. You know, if, if, if you're going <laughs> to let me do plugs, it's just going to be game over. Um, yeah. Like you said, it's out Tuesday, May 4th, uh, Amazon, kind of wherever you get the books. I actually did the audio book too. So if you're into that, um, it's kind of like, you know, that was a whole nother challenge of like grinding and planning to get through that. 
and try not to hate yourself when you're reading your own words. So I highly recommend that process to the real masochists out there if they're ever into it. If you've got writers who are like kind of thinking, how could I really ruin my own life? It's a great way to do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all my writing is at washingtonpost.com slash sports. And you mentioned that video. It's on my Instagram at ben.golliver. And I appreciate you saying that. I haven't gotten a lot of crazies yet, um, but I have... I, I think it's kind of quiet judgment is what I'm getting right now. It's kind of people like, all right, you know, he, he might be wound a little bit too tight. We're just going to leave this one alone and, uh, you know, see how it no, hopefully I... he comes back to earth here at some point. <laughs> Honestly, I admire the discipline. I really do. Like just like, I know I was joking earlier about your steps, but I admire that you, you stay focused. You have your little goals. You, you get your little rings checked every month. You have your spreadsheets. I mean, I'm not that methodical, but I, I do appreciate the discipline on your part. I wasn't that either. I really do think that's like kind of one of the takeaways for me from the pandemic is like, all right, well, this was an opportunity to like really structure things for the benefit of your own sanity. Like if you, if you needed it, I don't do great with unstructured time. And usually the NBA season is so chaotic that there's like never a down moment and being presented with like nothing to do for those first two months, except for like wait for the last dance to come out. That was a real wake up call for me. It was like, wow, you know, my life might really be pretty empty. I probably got to figure this thing out. So uh, mm -hmm. to me, the, the discipline, it's been one of the, the unexpected benefits or byproducts of this really weird year. And hopefully it sticks, you know, hopefully I don't go back to the, the same craziness before, because I think, you know, planning, like you're mentioning and getting out in front of things is actually really good for your, your body, your, your mind and, and your soul too. Like, but putting yourself in corners and procrastinating and all that. It's just like, you're, you're adding unnecessary stress where it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks again, Ben. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm glad that we got a lot of Nick Nurse talk. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Thanks again to my guest, Ben Golliver. His book, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season, is out Tuesday, May 4th. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at itsme underscore Catherine, spelled C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. And if you're on Apple, give us a five-star rating. It really helps the show. New episodes come out every Monday. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. My time, reclaim all that they stole from you and from me. Been past you, plus late fee. I said I came to go to the tunnel to stay.